Nick and CORE changed their policies to one that was embracing of black people protecting themselves. That's what got Martin Luther King killed. That's what got any number of less prominent black people killed. They weren't going to get protection from the police. You don't defend yourself. Who you think will? Welcome back to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. The civil rights movement is famous for its nonviolent tactics. Sit-ins at lunch counters, riding integrated buses into the Jim Crow South, marches for hundreds of miles to raise awareness about voting rights. But not many people know how important guns were to the civil rights movement. In today's show, we're going to look at the role guns played alongside nonviolent civil disobedience during the struggle for civil rights. And we'll ask, can you have a nonviolent movement and still be armed? Okay, uh, this is Charles Cobb. Charles Cobb is a journalist and civil rights activist. He was a field secretary for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC for short. In Mississippi between 1962 and 1967, a very violent period. Charles wrote a book about those years called This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed. As a young man volunteering to register voters in the South, Charles said that Black veterans were critically important to the success of groups like SNCC and the Congress for Racial Equality, CORE. I mean, these Black veterans that we encountered in Mississippi in the 1960s uh, uh, were constantly telling us stories about what they encountered when they were overseas in, in the South Pacific or in Europe. African Americans who served abroad came away from the experience profoundly changed. And it was not the world uh, that they had learned to accept in the United States. This was happening as early as World War I, when black intellectuals like W.E.B. Du Bois were encouraging African Americans to serve as a way to gain more rights. 369th fought on the line of fire for 191 days. This is audio from U.S. War Department propaganda. It was a film to encourage African Americans to enlist. By the time the United States entered World War I in 1917, the French were desperate for soldiers. So when the U.S. forces showed up, they put the African American servicemen to work and fight right alongside French troops. Fighting with the 8th Illinois on the Soissons Front. Pershing asked the French to uh, issue uh, a memorandum um, on how to treat black people. General John Pershing, the commander of American forces during World War I, was disturbed by the equal treatment of African-American soldiers by the French. It was an August 7, 18, 1918 memorandum called Secret Information Concerning Black American Troops. The document stresses that French officials needed to understand the sensitivities of race in America and recognize that black people would pose a dire threat once they returned home unless they were consistently separated from whites 
while overseas. Quote, the vices of the Negro are a constant menace to the American who has to repress them sternly. And for action above and beyond the call of duty, the French tore up the memo. Honored medal. When they cleaned up in France, the boys came marching home. The First and Second World Wars were the first time these African-American servicemen had seen a life outside the Jim Crow South, and it made an impression. What Black leaders, in particular the Black community in general, is picking up on is the rhetoric of freedom and democracy that was wrapped around the rhetoric of struggle against Adolf Hitler in Europe. And furthermore, they came back home with their guns, and as the Ku Klux Klan and the like were increasingly discovering in the aftermath of World War II that the people they came to shoot were increasingly inclined to shoot back. In our last episode, we talked about white supremacist terrorism, like lynchings after the Civil War. But 1954 set off a whole new wave of attacks by the KKK and other hate groups. The reason? Brown versus Board of Education. This decision struck down the Jim Crow mainstay of separate but equal in education. Now, why did the Supreme Court's Brown decision trigger an expansion of the KKK and and more anti-Black violence? Social equality was high up on the list of white nightmares and little Black boys going to school, perhaps sitting one desk over from little white girls was simply seen as intolerable. That's all. Social equality. I mean, I, and the, the term doesn't exist today, but back then, it was a rallying cry for white terrorism. In 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. 14-year-old Emmett Till was lynched, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s home was bombed in 1956. Charles E. Cobb was getting ready to go off to college when the sit-ins started in the 1960s. He saw news about nonviolent civil disobedience. Guns had never been in Charles's life growing up in Washington, D.C. or Springfield, Massachusetts. But when he stayed with families in Mississippi as an organizer, they were everywhere. There was a core volunteer freedom house. You know, how, did their practice of, of nonviolence make them sitting ducks? And who protected the house? There were people in the community that kept an eye out. In all these communities, people, that's what's the mispoint about the Southern movement is how embedded the civil rights workers were with the community. That's who kept an eye out. Civil rights workers didn't have to mount armed guards. Older folks in the civil rights movement, the grown-ups as Charles called them, were more likely to carry guns for protection than the younger SNCC and Corps volunteers from out of state. We were staying with families when we were working in the South. Uh, and every household I ever stayed in had guns. It didn't take me long to figure out that was a good thing they had guns. <laughs> Helped keep me alive. And they saw themselves as a part of the nonviolent movement and would tell you they're a part of the nonviolent movement, even as they were cleaning their rifles. And But basically their attitude was, Charlie, we're not going to let these white people kill you. 
And I was for that. Leaders like Hartman Turnbow and Fannie Lou Hamer were famous for their guns. Charles met Fannie Lou Hamer when he was working for SNCC as a field coordinator in Mississippi. Well, I, you know, I was with Mrs. Hamer the first time she tried to register the vote. That was 1962. Fannie Lou Hamer lost her job and home as a result of trying to register to vote. She would become a powerful voice for civil rights, but her activism put her in the crosshairs of the KKK. Mrs. Hamer had shotguns, too. I mean, she, 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 she told us at one point, and I can quote her exactly, she said, I keep a shotgun in every corner of my bedroom, and the first cracker tries to throw some dynamite on my front porch won't write his mama again. Hartman Turnbow was another Mississippi civil rights activist who had reservations about nonviolence in the face of terrorism. Uh, well, you know, Martin Luther King was touring Mississippi. This is in 1964. And, you know, he was moving, going right across the state, and he was being introduced to local leaders. And one of the local leaders we worked with was uh, Hartman Turnbow, a small farmer in Holmes County, Mississippi. And Mr. Turnbow, always heavily armed and never known to be shy about speaking his mind, after the courtesies of introduction, looked at Reverend King, and said, I quote him exactly, uh, uh, Reverend King, this nonviolent stuff ain't no good. It'll get you killed. Uh, and unfortunately, he was right, you know, uh, in the sense that King ultimately is assassinated, of course. The role of guns divided the civil rights movement. For organizers like Charles E. Cobb, nonviolence was an effective tactic, but it was never an end in itself. Other leaders, like John Lewis, were committed to nonviolence as a way of life, Charles said. They believed that there was good in all people, and through your actions, you could change someone's mind. I mean, that's a deep philosophical approach to life. And they studied it. Uh, We didn't have anything like that. Uh, For us, what we studied were tactics. If you're attacked by a mob, how do you protect yourself from serious physical harm? How do you protect somebody else who is under assault? How do you use your body to do that? Those those are training in the tactics of of non-retaliation, if you will. Uh, But they're not rooted, really, in a philosophical concept. When I first see the sit-ins erupt in 1960, I understand nonviolence as a movement to be a movement of nonviolent direct action. I saw that as a tactic. And the question for me, I was getting ready to go off to college when the sit-ins broke out in 1960, was could I really do that? And that did not hang on a philosophical debate about nonviolence. It was, can I really let white people beat up on me like that? So you could participate in nonviolent protests, but still be armed? That question was front and center in the summer of 1966, during the March Against Fear. Oh, man, the March Against Fear was started by one lone black man, James Murder. This is Akinyele Omoja. He's an activist and chair of African-American studies at Georgia State University. 
James Meredith was the first African-American man to attend the University of Mississippi Law School. After the 1965 Voting Rights Act became law, James decided to go on a march from Memphis to Jackson, Mississippi, to prove there was nothing for black Americans to fear in voting. He uh, went on a march, and early in the march, uh, while he's uh, entering the state of Mississippi, in northern Mississippi, he's shot by a sniper. Fortunately, he survives the sniper attack. There's a debate in the, uh, amongst the leaders because the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and Corps, they wanted to have uh, the Deacons for Defense provide security. The Deacons for Defense and Justice was an armed black self-defense group. After the police escorted a KKK march through a black neighborhood in Jonesboro, Mississippi in 1964, a group of black men and women, including some veterans, started patrolling their neighborhoods with guns. We were very good at what we did. Fletcher Anderson was a founding member of the Deacons for Defense chapter in Bogalusa, Louisiana, who helped patrol the march that summer. He told his story to the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress as part of a project documenting the civil rights struggle. We protected our neighborhoods that stopped people from driving by, shooting up in their houses and, and, and beating them. We had walkie-talkers, we had com- things that commute with one another all through the community. We know where everybody at. We know we had block captains. We had everything set for anything. If anybody come in there, we were able to block the streets off. Because we had to, to be our own protection because the police were not there to protect us. They were there to protect the Ku Klux Klan. The interviewer, Joseph Meunier, asked Fletcher Anderson's wife, Cynthia, what people in Bogalusa thought of her husband joining the Deacons for Defense. All of the advice that other people gave me, leave him. You just gonna get yourself killed and get your children killed. No, that's not my way. I believed in what they believed in. If you don't defend yourself, who you think will? Civil rights organizers were divided over the role of a black militia, like the Deacons, participating in the march. The NAACP, Roy Wilkins, uh, and um, uh, Whitney Young of the Urban League didn't agree with that. Dr. King said he could agree to the Deacons being there patrol the march, but but they didn't want them, anyone in the march to carry guns. So that was the compromise they struck, and NAACP and Urban League decided couldn't get with that. They left. The march against fear reached Jackson, Mississippi without another violent incident. But the split between the NAACP and groups like SNCC over armed self-defense groups, like the Deacons, led to a more in-your-face approach to self-defense by black activists. This was the summer of black power. The slogan of black power becomes another thing that's popularized out of the march. You know, the movement, which was exclusively non, they, at least they thought was exclusively nonviolent. Prior to that, you got you had these black people with uh, guns, rifles, and shotguns, and uh, handguns, and walkie-talkies, uh, 
patrolling the march and protecting the marchers, um, they, the media picks up that there's something different going on. And um, that's, you know, part of this black power movement that inspires groups like the Black Panther Party. The summer of 1966 inspired Huey Newton and Bobby Seale to form the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in Oakland, California. They figured out how, what was the legal distance you could stay away and, to observe police officers. And they decided, inspired by the deacons, that they were going to do armed patrols uh, of police. These armed patrols caught the attention of the country. Believe it or not, California, of all places, had lax gun laws. It was legal to carry loaded pistols, shotguns, any kind of gun, in public. As long as the Black Panthers kept their distance from the police, they could follow them and observe arrests and patrols. The Black Panther patrols sent shivers down the spine of the political establishment in California. Republican Assemblyman Don Mulford drafted a bill to repeal the state's law that allowed carrying of loaded firearms in public. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense calls upon the American people in general and the black people in particular to take careful note of the racist California legislature, which is now considering legislation aimed at keeping the black people disarmed and powerless at the very same time racist police agencies throughout the country are intensifying the terror, brutality, murder, and repression of black people. In 1967, a group of roughly 30 Black Panthers took their guns to the California State House in protest. Am I under arrest? Take your hands off me if I'm not under arrest! Police tried to disarm the Black Panthers when they entered the State House. Several Black Panther demonstrators were arrested. Huey Newton, one of the founders of the Black Panthers, told reporters they had every right to be there. They put trumped up charges of conspiracy and felonies on everyone who went in to exercise a constitutional right and said they had no right to bear arms in a public place. The uh, California Penal Code section 12020 through 12027 and also the Second Amendment of the Constitution guarantees the citizen a right to bear arms on public property. California's governor at the time, Ronald Reagan, signed the Mulford Act later that year. When they pass that law, that's what kind of prevents the armed patrols. In fact, that's one of the things that the Panthers are kind of known for, but they only had that policy. It was less than a year that they openly carried weapons out there in the streets like that. There were other attempts to disarm black nationalist groups, like the Black Panthers, or self-defense militias like the Deacons for Defense. But Akinyele says that the most effective tool for disarming these black self-defense forces wasn't laws or law enforcement. It was the civil rights victories, locally or nationally, that made African Americans feel safer. What actually disarmed the deacons was when they started to make civil rights gains. And so, for instance, Claiborne County, I went there and some of the deacons were now working for the sheriff department. So when you had black people could become part of the police departments, they didn't feel the same need to have a deacons for a defense organization. Um, when they were part of law enforcement. That's what actually stops it. Now, was armed black resistance successful in repelling white supremacist violence? Yes, most definitely. Not always successful, but many times they were successful, uh, protecting and defending themselves. Fletcher Anderson, the member of the Bogalusa chapter of the Deacons for Defense, agrees. Okay. Um, 
When you think back on, on the Bogalusa movement, mm-hmm. could it ever have taken the form that it did without, without the real capacity in the community for self-defense? I don't think so. Me. I don't think so. Because we have to be able to, for the community to say that there was somebody going to protect them. That they could go to bed knowing that somebody was out there protecting them. That they weren't going to be drugged out of their houses. They weren't going to be killed. Their children weren't going to be uh, Emmett Till or those type situations happening to them. And once they knew that, they were able to come out and go to their jobs and come back. A lot of them suffered, a lot of them got laid off. But without the Deacon of Defense, your question, no, it wouldn't, it couldn't have stood. The fear is gone, the fear is gone out of black people of the Ku Klux Klan. That fear is gone, there's no more fear there. The Deacon took the fear out of it. But it also shows you that you don't look for trouble, all you do is protect yourself, protect yourself. And um, so far that been happening here. It's impossible to deny that guns played an important role in the struggle for civil rights. Military service during World War I and II showed black men that they didn't have to accept the status quo. They enlisted to fight fascism overseas and returned home to become civil rights leaders, fighting America's own brand of fascism, white supremacy. The civil rights movement was nonviolent, and that violence was not used to achieve racial justice. Guns weren't tools of aggression, bitterness, or vengeance. They were tools of self-defense. Nonviolence was a key tactic, because many whites, even those sympathetic to the civil rights cause, were terrified of black vengeance, of having to atone for wrongs past and present. It's why many today are insistent that the oppressions of slavery and racism are in the past, that we live in a post-racial, colorblind America. It's why many find the Black Lives Matter movement so unsettling. Next time, we'll speak with African-American gun and gun safety advocates to see what armed self-defense looks like for Black Americans today. Today's episode of In Sickness and in Health was produced by Zach Dyer and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by The Blue Dot Sessions. Audio of oral history interviews with Cynthia Baker Anderson and Fletcher Anderson, conducted by Joseph Meunier, care of the Civil Rights History Project Collection at the Library of Congress American Folklife Center. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.